0: that is back after some time we took uh, some time off me and uh, ralph were busy organizing tours or traveling around the world so we, we plan to start doing episodes uh, more or less regularly again soon uh, there will probably be some changes so stay tuned for what's upcoming so hello ralph nice to see you
1: Hello there, Ugo. Good to see you, my friend. How are you?
0: I'm good. Um, you are in Tbilisi right now?
1: That's right. right. I'm in Tbilisi, uh, Republic of Georgia, doing some scouting.
0: Funny that our and, uh, paths crossed just a couple days ago. We were both traveling through the Munich airport <laughs> at the same time. And we had a time to, to meet face to face and uh, drink a couple of beers on our respective ways. As, uh, that was quite funny, too. <laughs> coincidence. You
1: know, it's funny because I was sitting on the airplane in Chicago getting ready to take off. I just kind of was perusing Facebook very quickly before, you know, the Wi-Fi went out. And I see that you were going to be in Munich. And I was flying to Munich. And so I reached out to you to see if uh, there was an opportunity for our. And I had quite, an, quite about a seven, eight hour layover so. Uh, we had a little window of time it was just enough time for a couple beers it was great fun
0: Uh, i understand (laughs) that people have concerns about privacy and and so on don't want to uh, share when when they are traveling or so but i think if you're traveling for photography and it's it's a good thing maybe to to share where you're going because you never know you might meet some locals there that you you don't know you haven't met before i mean in this case it was just a meeting at the airport but letting people know that I was going to, to Munich and uh, favor this uh, this circumstance of us meeting in person. And uh, that, that can always be interesting and, and fun. So uh, that's something that if people are not overly concerned about privacy for whatever reason, might be legitimate reasons, it could be a, a good thing to do uh, if you want to meet new people that maybe you've known online for, for a long time. Right? What do you think?
1: Absolutely. And uh, it was funny, because while we were sitting there, I saw that another friend of mine was coming through Munich as well. She was flying back to Chicago. And uh, she must have already been on the plane and locked up and everything. But uh, when she finally landed back in Chicago, she said, uh, indeed, she was there. And that would have been funny to have the three of us in that that one place. But uh, Yeah. yeah, it's good.
0: Stuff. On the same note, uh, I, I think already mentioned on, on a previous episode that I've uh, started organizing this trip to Japan for November, and uh, one of the things that I've uh, always liked to do when I go there is to to meet people who uh, who live there, so they can maybe uh, give me a little bit of their. Uh, insights about the country about the the places to photograph and so on Uh, i actually don't think i know any japanese photographers but i know one who has been living in japan for many years i think and he's been a guest uh, on the show almost three years ago he was a guest on episode 32 and uh, i'm really happy to have him back uh, today with us and martin bailey from tokyo hi martin
2: here you go, that's, uh, and Ralph. It's nice to nice to be talking with you both. It's
0: great to have you here. Yeah. So let me just give uh, people who don't know Martin Bailey a little bit of a, a blurb on uh, uh, on him. Uh, Martin is a nature and wildlife photographer based in Tokyo, which sounds uh, quite interesting because <laughs> I think that's at least last uh, the last thing that people think about when. Uh, thinking about Tokyo mm. is wildlife, but <laughs> uh, mm. I know he likes to travel around Japan for uh, for his wildlife photos. Uh, he's been a podcaster for how how many years? Have it has it been, Martin?
2: Uh, f- coming up to fourteen years now. Wow, that's, so, uh, uh, yeah. that's
0: a long time. You, you're still doing it, right? I'm, I'm still
2: Absolutely, yeah, you know. yeah. Before everything. the internet, huh? Wow, <laughs> almost. <laughs> Yeah, it was the third, the third photography podcast in iTunes. So uh, lens work wow. and Chris Marquardt's uh, tips from the top floor beat me to it, but wow. I was the third.
0: How many That's episodes awful. have you published? You
2: know, um, it's let's see, I'm at six hundred and fifty-four. Yeah. Uh, this week is six hundred and fifty-four. So, yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, you're a nature and uh, travel photographer and. Uh, mostly wildlife, uh, you're also an educator. You share your knowledge and vision through your podcast and, and the courses and the workshops and tools that you, that you organize. And on your bio, you say you help photographers around the world to experience and capture the wonders of this awesome planet we call home, which I think yep. is a great mission statement. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate in that Um, You know, the the podcast as a marketing vehicle didn't start out this way, but it sort of helped me to build enough of an audience that I was able to uh, quit my day job like five years after starting the podcast. And so for the last nine years, I have been making my living as a as a photographer, but as more so uh, with the tours and the workshops, and it just enables me to. To work with people, um, I've been fortunate enough to to build a good reputation as probably one of the go-to photographers to travel with here in Japan. Um, but, uh, and that's really for the winter when I really feel that the wildlife comes to life here. Um, but the outside of that, I've been invited to a whole bunch of countries and uh, done workshops and tours in, in Namibia, Greenland, Iceland, um I have, I've done Antarctica. I think four times, um, and and every time I go to these places, I get to meet people that I am. I, I learn from the people that I travel with as well. Um, but I al- also I just get to. I feel it enriches us. The more that we meet people, and the more people we know, the more we are able to grow as as people. And so, it, it's one of these things. I've seen people. For example, there was one lady, um, I, it was a, a lady from Israel, um, and I've traveled with her a, a few times now. Um, she She's not sort of the, the, the most steady person on her feet. She's, she's had a few illnesses and she sort of, she doesn't walk so great. But there was uh, one morning about five or six years ago, we were at the cranes in Hokkaido and... This lady was looking a little bit down for the first few days of the tour and then the cranes started to dance in the snow and she was jumping up and down and giggling like a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful to see, you know, just to to be able to watch her being so happy to be photographing the things that I had basically enabled her to do. And so those sort of experiences, I think, to a degree, change me and always make me feel so fortunate to be able to share this planet and the and the beautiful locations that I take my clients to to be able to actually share that and and help them with their their own life experiences
1: yeah, I often say that that's the best part of my job is just being able to share the world with my clients and to
2: exactly. to, to
1: show that you know when we go on these scouting trips and you have these great experiences and I, I I say I can't wait to bring my group back to do what I just did or eat what mm. I just had or whatever that is to me mm. that is the best.
2: Yep. Yeah, 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 absolutely
0: now i can hear from your accent and of course i know that you're not japanese as i said can you maybe <laughs> tell us uh, just uh, very shortly a little bit of the background your your background story how did you uh, mm. get to move to japan and stay there for for so long
2: yeah i i actually although obviously not japanese born i, I am japanese my i don't have a uk passport anymore um wow. and the, and there's uh the Basically what happened was when I was 24, I got a chance to come to Japan and it was actually making lace. My my trade for uh, pretty much the whole time after high school was making lace on these big old uh, lace looms um, called Nottingham Lace or Lever's Lace. And I got a chance to do that here in Japan um, from 91 it was, so 28 years ago now. Um, and I jumped at the chance. I came to Japan. I was homesick for three days and then I fell in love with the country and pretty much decided I'd never wanted to go home. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't so much that I dislike England. I I still love the fact that my family are all there and England's, you know, it's a lovely place, but I, I just felt that Japan suited me so much more. Um, and I, I literally, I pretty much at that time decided I was going to stay and I I found ways to make that happen, um, you know. And then in 2010, I became a Japanese citizen, uh, just because I I really just didn't want to be messing around with visas and things anymore. Um, and so I I became a Japanese citizen, and then uh, the rest is history. Really,
1: mm-hmm. was that a long, difficult process to to make that happen, Martin?
2: It was somewhat difficult um the the biggest problem was that uh, obviously I mean there's a few things that you have to be to be able to do they they interview you and make sure that you can actually speak and read and write Japanese um and so that's a big part of it um, but they they you you've got to do things like having lived here for five years you've got to be in employment with various things um but the the main thing was that they they couldn't really believe that I wanted to. Um, they it was a strange conversation that they were talking about the like the rank or the level of the quality of citizenships, and they were saying that we can't believe that you would want to re- lower your rank as a as a global citizen. And I said, well, I don't believe I am. Um, you know, and it's, and it's really not about that. I just, I just don't want to be messing around with visas anymore. So, um, they pushed it through and I, it all worked out. The funny part about it was that when it, uh, before they actually processed the final part of my, um, my application and gave me Japanese citizenship, they, made me get a certificate of renunciation from the british government to prove that i'd renounced my my british citizenship and so I, I went to the embassy that i got a phone call saying that that had come through i went to the embassy in tokyo to pick it up and when i was you know the lady behind the counter was cutting the corner off my passport and I, I said to her, so what happens now, say, if someone in my family gets seriously ill over the next few weeks before I get my Japanese passport and, you know, my Japanese citizenship and passport? And uh, she, she said, as uh, she pushed my, my new, my deformed uh, passport back out under the under the little window there, she, she said, ask the Japanese government, you're no longer British. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh. and it Whoa. was like, uh, and, and and it oh, was. I mean, wow. it's, it was true. I mean, she was she was she was saying exactly. I just basically said to England, "I don't need your citizenship." So she was right, but it, it was a, a little bit of a harsh blow to be to be dealed or yeah. dealt or dealt. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now we were uh, talking about your uh, true calling and passion, which is shooting wildlife. And as I said, of mm. course, there isn't much wildlife in Tokyo, probably, unless mm. it's some parks mm. or or the zoo. Yeah. It's not really wild, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, uh, what's your favorite uh, area of Japan for for shooting wildlife, and why?
2: Mm. Well, yeah, I I actually when I when I class myself as a nature and wildlife uh, photographer, I might as well class myself as a landscape and wildlife photographer because my passions. For photography is pretty much split half and half between uh, landscape and wildlife and both of my favorite locations to do those are it's the the big diamond-shaped island at the top of, of japan called hokkaido and i mean that's where i've been running my uh my tours and workshops my my very first tour and workshop that i ran um was in 2018 and that was up there um and I've been doing them yearly since, but the 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 wildlife there in the winter is absolutely spectacular. I I don't do a lot of wildlife outside of that those few months uh, here in Japan just because it's it pales um, with you know when you compare it to what we get to shoot during those uh, those winter months. Um, but they have um, some amazing, magnificent. They have the red crowned crane, which is, I mean, it's it's a bird that stands at like almost five foot tall, um, and they do these beautiful dances uh, that blow you away. It's it's as though the ballet was uh, was made having watched cranes dance. You know, they they're so elegant and beautiful. But then also we've got the we've got the sea eagles there, the stellar sea eagles and the white tailed eagles um white tailed eagles are relatively common across northern europe um, but the stellar seagulls are only really over in Russia and um the Kamchatka Peninsula and then Japan in the winter um but they they are both two incredibly majestic and beautiful strong i mean the the stellar sea eagle is i think the the larger ones have a wingspan. Of two and a half meters which is like nine or ten feet um they're they're like b-52s when they're flying around the boat that we go out on um and the 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 white-tailed eagles are only very slightly smaller um but we also we have uh the the northern red fox which is one of the cutest looking animals that you can photograph um they have the rugged uh, they call we call them the Ezo deer, which Ezo just is the the an old word for Hokkaido, the you know the island that I visit, um, and all of these things are just they're great. They're all big, um, majestic and elegant wildlife that spend the majority of of the winter here. Obviously the the fox, the deer, and the red crown cranes they don't migrate. They they're they're in Hokkaido the whole year. Um, around half of the the white-tailed eagles do migrate, and most of the stellers migrate back to Russia during the the rest of the year. But um, yeah, in the winter, it I, I call it the winter wonderland tour, and it really is the the wildlife up there during those winter months is spectacular.
0: So it's just because in winter there is more wildlife, or is it, it's also an aspect of a uh, visual aspect because the the wildlife against the the white. Snow stands out really well, and photos are m- more photo opportunities for for better ones,
2: yeah, depending on the subject it's a bit of both so the yeah with definitely the stellar seagulls they're not there um now they've all flown back you know during the early early parts of March, they all fly back to russia and so they're no longer there um but the cranes you know they they're more accessible. They are not only much more beautiful, a white bird with these black trims on the wings and the black, neck, black necks and then the red crown. Um, they're beautiful against the white. But also, so, so obviously you need, you need to be there when the background is white with the snow. Um, but also the, in, the, in the spring, they will go into the marshes to rear their young. And so they're not as accessible. You can't really go traipsing into the marsh with your camera. You know, you could, but you'd disturb them, and it's really not the done thing. Um, and you definitely wouldn't be doing that with a group of photographers. So it's, it's really about accessibility as well. In the winter, they come to specific places because they know that there's going to be corn thrown out for them. Um, they sleep in a specific place in a river um, because, of course... Sleeping in a river it's going to take the a lot of risk away you know the the fox won't won't go out in the river trying to trying to nibble at them um there There are no there used to be wolves in Hokkaido they're no longer there, so the the cranes don't have to worry about that so much um but just being in a river is going to take you away from any possible predators um especially when it's like minus twenty degrees Celsius or so. Um, You know, you don't want to be wading around in water when you've got to get back out into that temperature.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of wildlife photography, uh, I'm doing trips to Costa Rica now, and I wanted to talk to you uh, just about some of your top wildlife photography tips in general. It mm. uh, doesn't have mm. to be specifically about Hokkaido or cranes or yep. birds, but yep. in general, can you give us some tips for that?
2: Yeah, the, there's a few things that I I do. Um, some are perhaps considered a little bit unconventional with, as as far as you know the the general wildlife tips that you'll hear. Um, but I, for example, I I shoot in manual mode pretty much the whole time um and the reason i do that is because it means that i i don't have to then worry about it's it's kind of counterintuitive i don't have to worry about the exposure when something happens because i say if i'm sitting in a car i and we're driving to a place i will already have the camera on my lap and i'll be taking meter readings out of the window and setting the exposure Whenever I have a few moments to think about it, and so I'm, for example, a, I have a, a post in which you can see these, um, which you can get to at uh, mbp.ac/637. I'll send you that link. Um, but there's, there's a photo in there as a direct result of doing this. Uh, a photo of a a southern pale chanting goshawk (laughs) which is a a hawk that they have uh, down in Namibia and we were driving along and I'd got everything set up, I'd got my focusing mode set up correctly I'd got everything dialed in and we saw this goshawk uh, swoop down and catch a skink, uh, like a little lizard and as he took off with this skink and then dropped it we saw it screech to a halt and as the car was stopping literally i i was i was still sort of fighting the the force of the car braking i managed to get a couple of frames and it was it was mainly because i'd got everything set up i'd got my exposure dialed in i'd got my aperture set to what i wanted for depth of field um, and then I was able to just not think about any of that and just shoot a few frames as the sc- as the car screeched to a halt, and that um, that enabled me to get a shot that I'm very happy with. Um, but the the other part is really the things like having the having things ready to shoot. I have your if you are driving around looking for wildlife. Or even if you're just you're, you're actually out in the field walking through, it's never a good idea. I know a lot of people have like long lenses sometimes on a tripod and the tripod over the, over your shoulder. That's never a good idea unless you've got some sort of a leash or a camera strap onto it and make sure that your hand is also hoop, uh, loop, you know, looped through the leash or camera strap, and then if your camera or your tripod head does fall off. Then you've you've got something to hold it and stop your camera from falling to the ground, um, but you know if, if you do that, it's fine. But just really, basically, have a camera ready. Make sure that you've got something ready whenever the uh, action starts. Make sure you've got the the appropriate lens on. Um, have at least a guesstimate of your uh, settings. But also, once you start the uh, wildlife photography. There are things like making sure that you're in AI servo or continuous focusing modes. The the, the you'll want to be in high as uh, make it, make your camera so that it will shoot a higher as higher frame rate as possible, for example. Um, but also the the settings that you shoot that you set your camera in uh, with regards to tracking and how easily it will try to switch between focus points is also very critical when it comes to getting your camera to stay, uh, like, you know, to track with or to stay latched on to a specific subject. Um, And again, this is something that I do, that I've had great success with, but a lot of wildlife photographers will not tell you to do, is that I, I actually set my cameras up to start focusing with the center focus point and then use all of the available focus points in the frame to track with it. Um, a lot of wildlife photographers use cluster or they they use a one one point or clusters, and I just allow the camera to use all of them. But I set things up so that it really tr- stays with the subject that I started focusing with. Um, and again, the, the post that I mentioned a moment ago, has uh, some information on those settings that uh, that people could check out as well
1: right and and what about animal behavior how uh I, you've been shooting these same types of animal in the same area for years and years so you've come to come to know these animals and what their behaviors are how important is knowing the the subject's behavior in this instance
2: i i think it's to a degree it's it's necessary and i think that you if you do photograph the same thing for a while you pick it up anyway um for example with the red crown cranes i've been i've been standing in front of a crane, a field of cranes in the winter for oh, what will it be a good 15 16 years now and i I know just by the way they they lean into the wind or they they make this this little chirp and and they don't do it a lot of the, a lot of the rest of the time so I can be standing in front of a a field full of say 200 cranes and say to my guests those three in the back are going to fly and I with a pretty good pretty good um you know proportion of of success i i point out the ones that are going to fly and then we all get the focus on them and then they, you know they as they fly away it it really um it really comes from just spending time with them um but it it's not i don't think it's necessarily a a prerequisite you know you, you can go and shoot um shoot an animal and learn as you as you shoot them the first one but I think it, it does help if you're at least with someone, um, especially when it's completely wild animals. Obviously, uh, the cranes, we know where they're going to be, and um, we, we don't shoot them in the complete wild a lot of the time. Um, but if you're going somewhere and you want to photograph something that is completely wild, you're going to probably need a little bit of local help to, to show you at least where these animals could be. Um, or, at least sort of you know do a bit of research online before you go, so that you know where you 've got a good chance of seeing the animal that you 're trying to that you 're trying to capture
0: uh, out of curiosity are those places crowded i mean uh, in a sense that i 've seen uh, Images of uh, you know Bosque de la Apache in the U.S., where there are mm. the, the pond with all those birds, and you look at the behind the scene shots with a row of photographers with their tripods or monopods lined up there. Is mm. the situation similar to that, or is is it less popular, less crowded? It
2: it's there are a couple of locations where it's it's really getting unworkable. Um, the there is one place I I do two. Um, tours to Hokkaido, Eastern Hokkaido in the winter, and the first one is still fine because it's it's not what people consider the peak for the for the uh, think some of the things that we're shooting, but it's actually with the way the seasons are working, it it's working great now. Um, but the second trip is getting very very crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the when I mentioned earlier that the cranes roost in a river, that place there's the scene that we photograph is like half a mile down a river and we, we photograph it from a bridge and there's only a certain amount of space on the bridge that you can be on to actually get a, a, a shot. And that's getting crazy. You know, you can, you can arrive three hours before sunrise now and still not get a place. So yeah. it's that, yes, it, it's, it is getting a little bit, uh, out of hand. Um, to the point where you know, I'm I'm taking I'm taking measures to, um, to sort of circ- circumvent some of those things. But when there's when there's a place where you have to be in a specific place at a specific time, it, it's this one is specific uh, particularly is a very difficult location to to work now.
0: Um, thinking of. Uh crowded places and so on one that comes to my mind when i think of japan and i've seen lots of photos from that place and, and yours as well uh is that uh, what they call them the snow monkeys which are those mm. macaques that are bathing in that onsen or thermal bath uh is that like like crowded like that or is it more accessible how does it work
2: it, there? that's very crowded as well um, so there's the the two locations at the moment are the the, sm- the snow monkeys and the cranes mm-hmm. the difference with the snow monkeys is that we spend um like one afternoon one full day and then one morning there so we're there three times and the the tourists and the people that make it crowded come in waves And so we can we can still sort of just we wait it out. We let when there's a lot of people there, we'll go and sit in the hut and and maybe get warm. We'll go and have some lunch, and we make it work. You know, we can work around the crowds. Um, With the cranes, it's a specific thing that happens at a certain time, and it's on the second trip. It's getting difficult to work around it. Um, But yeah, with the snow monkeys, the, the photos that you see now. Uh, they're often um shot when there's a lot of people around um but again it still works i mean uh, once these trips get to the point where it's it's no longer workable i i will stop doing yeah. them um but i at the moment they still they still are uh, trips that will work and people are still walking away with great shots um, yeah, you know, and it all depends as well. The other, the other big thing about about all of this is that the weather is changing. Um, I I did again two trips there this year. The first one we had great snow on the middle day, and having the snow monkeys actually in the snow is a is a huge bonus. Um, you've got the snow on their fur; they get wet and matted, and they look great. Um, but on the second trip, we didn't get any snow, and you know and and then like days after we left they had a load of snow again mm-hmm. so you really have to be fortunate with the uh with the weather as well to get the good conditions but yeah the people you can work with it uh just if ever if anyone goes to the snow monkeys and especially if you're organizing a trip on your own um just make sure that you give yourself some time to actually photograph them um you know you'd need to go Prepared. I mean, some people turn up in very thin clothes, like jeans and 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 just a, a a regular jacket. If you're going to be standing in in the the cold for a long time, then you know to actually get your shots, then you need to be prepared clothing-wise. Uh, but uh, but you know, assuming you've got that done, just give yourself plenty of time to actually just let the 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 waves of crowds come and go, and then you'll get your shots in between that.
0: Yeah, I don't know how it will work for me when. I'm doing this trip because I'm with my wife and a couple of friends mm. there in November so I don't think that would be snow. So I don't think they will like me staying there for a few hours waiting for the crowds to thin. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. I'll do it and I'm, I'm actually planning on doing another trip maybe in, in winter 2020 and then I'll probably yeah. work out better. We'll
2: see. That, w- that would be better. The, yeah. the November at the Snow Monkeys can be challenging. It, it's It's... You may have some fall color still, you know, with the trees. So that would be nice. Um, but without the snow, they, they're just monkeys. And although they can be beautiful, I mean, I've got one of my favorite shots, um, of a, a four or five week old macaque, um, just his face, just a portrait. And and in fact, you have that shot on the last interview page that we did, um, that is one of my favorite photos of them and that was shot in June mm-hmm. um, so yeah you can still get shots but it's it's not quite the same as having the actual snow monkeys you know as in, in quotes uh, when when it's when it is snowing Hugo
1: mm. are you, are you uh, going up to Hokkaido on your trip?
0: Uh, no I don't think so just oh, okay. because what I said I mean it's a uh, first visit to Japan and my wife and my friends they like to see more of a uh, historical places, cities, and uh, yeah, a bit of landscape is fine, but they're not that much into wildlife or landscape, pure landscape. So I'll probably mm. stick to Tokyo, Kyoto, maybe some of the historical cities like, I don't know, Kanazawa, Nara, and so on. Well, We'll see, still have to make mm. plans, but yeah, mm. maybe when I go back on my own, although more of a, a pure landscape nature things, if possible, mm. we'll see.
2: Mm.
1: How long will you be there?
0: Oh, a couple of weeks. Couple
1: oh, weeks, wow, nice. I'm sorry. I, I, I was in uh, Tokyo for the first time ever. Um, I think two, three uh, over the holidays, uh, Christmas holidays, two, three years ago. And I may have mentioned it before, but I was looking at my flights back from Vietnam, where I was doing a, a photo tour, and the flight was going through Tokyo back to Chicago. And I just called the airline up, asked them if I could you know, do a a stay, do a layover in Tokyo, uh, which many airlines will allow you to do at no extra cost. So the flight to Japan didn't cost me anything, really. And then I got an Airbnb for about $80 a night. So it turned out uh, in uh, Roppongi, which uh, is a really nice area. And so it turned out to be a very inexpensive place to what's what I always thought of as a very expensive country. So it it was fantastic. So if people have a layover through this particular city, you can call the airlines and ask them if you can open up that, that window of time and stay there and perhaps get, you know, some free, uh, get essentially a free flight to that place. And I've heard that they will allow you uh, some airlines to even do that for up to 364 days. uh, Wow. (laughs) That layover. So you call the airlines and ask them. You never know. You you know,
2: with with regards to the uh, cost of living in Japan now, um, it it does have a reputation for being an expensive country. But that reputation was built about 20 years ago when the the bubble, what they call the bubble area or the bubble economy and the prices went through the roof. The, The thing is with Japan is they've had a deflation problem since then and the rest of the world has shot past. Japan. So you know, I mean, 20 years ago, I could, I could, I. It felt wrong to be spending like $10 for a pint of beer, and it's in some ways it still does. But the the rest of the world got expensive as well and so now that that ten dollars or eight to ten dollars that you pay for a beer is has not changed and so it it doesn't actually feel anywhere near as expensive as it used to now so it I mean it's good it's and the exchange rates have become much more favorable Um, when I first came to Japan it was 350 yen per dollar now it's 111 so it's like a third Um, it makes a big difference Uh
0: Speaking of seasons, I mean, we, we talked about winter because that's your favorite time of the year, it appears. But mm. right now, I think we're at the what's that? The start of the hanami season there. Yeah, the, yeah. The Sakura, the, the cherry yeah, blossom. The cherry, cherry blossom. Yeah. Uh, how's that? Is that crazy? As they say, millions of people on the streets going there.
2: What you you it? know, it's it's can be crazy, and and this is why I don't do tours here f- at for the cherry blossom. Um, because there's you know the, anywhere where they have some nice cherry blossom, people will flock to that, and they have what they call the hanami parties, which is um where you'll you'll go and buy a a, a, a you know a, a crate of beer and and put a plastic sheet on the ground and then just get drunk with your friends under the under the cherry blossom, and that in itself is fun. But everybody wants to do it, mm. and so you have the parks that are absolutely full of some parks don't allow alcohol and that makes it a little bit uh, easier to to do in some respects but it there's a lot of pe- a lot of people in the in the the popular areas um and some of the more natural areas that have beautiful cherry blossom they put restrictions in place where you you have to park miles away and then go in by bus and yet you, you get x number of minutes to photograph it and then you have to leave and it, it can be challenging um i definitely think if you're going to do cherry blossom in japan it's the sort of thing to do as a small group you know just uh, just you and family and or friends rather than trying to do a, a big tour because mm-hmm. uh, you yeah, know they, they they can be very challenging
0: and um, i'm also coming there in november which uh, just choose november just because the uh, air tickets were the cheapest and mm. there was no particular reason but then i mm. learned that it's also the at least in some parts of the country the the red foliage the, the red leaf season yeah right? yeah i think that's uh And I was uh, speaking with a Japanese uh, woman a few weeks ago and she told me if you want to go to to Kyoto and there are the Red Leaves, you should book your hotels by June, no later than that, otherwise it would be impossible.
2: You know, know, that might be old information as well. The government had made a policy a few years ago to bring 30 million um, tourists into Japan. In 2018, and they achieved that goal, mm-hmm. um, and that's a lot of people, and pretty much all of them go to Kyoto, and so it's very very crowded now, um, and some of the beautiful old traditional streets are just full of overseas visitors. Um, so, I mean, to a lot of people, although you should go, Kyoto is is still a beautiful place. Um, be prepared to get into some pretty nasty crowds. Mm-hmm. Um, the roads are atrocious now. The the bus you can't get on the buses. The local people have started to seriously complain because they can't re- lead their everyday lives. You know they can't get on the bus and go to the grocery store anymore because it's full of overseas visitors. Um, I personally think the government has completely screwed up with their tourism policy. Um, and it's it's like i heard recently that barcelona have now um, banned the construction of any new hotels for the foreseeable future because there's too many tourists in barcelona now and it, it can ruin a city and i think that to be completely honest that's what's happening with kyoto at the moment um so although yeah go and take a look i i would imagine you'll have a better time now in the other places that you mentioned like nara Mm-hmm. Nara is a beautiful place. They've got the 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 big Buddha there. Um, they they have a lot of what Kyoto has, but not quite so many tourists. Um, as you know, but you know, like I say, go yeah. and take a look. Um, and and it's the other thing to do as well is Hiroshima. Um, mm-hmm. go to the atomic atomic museum. You know, the the bomb uh, museum is that's something that if you're in if you're in Japan. Um I would recommend ed- anybody tries to do um just to give yourself a a perspective on what happened down there um but uh, you know and it's and it's not a positive or negative thing in that I'm not going to say that it was right or wrong to have dropped the bomb or to have been bombed um I think that there was there was um, you know, positive and negative things about you know depending on which which um, side you you start to talk about, obviously people have got different views, but I think that it happened and as a piece of history um the the museums in Hiroshima um, can help to open your eyes to a lot of things, um not just about the bomb and the war but about um you know the the things that happened there and how we could probably learn a lot of, as a human as the human race from from some of the things that they've got on display there
0: yeah i hear what you say i mean coming to to japan for the first time uh and not going to kyoto would feel strange mm. at least for for my mm. friends and family uh, oh, it would it be like coming comes. coming to, to to Italy for the first time and not going to to Rome, Florence, or Venice. So those places yeah. can be crowded too. But or to yeah. go to Spain and not see Barcelona, <laughs> it, it can be crowded. But I think you can in every place you can work your way around and try to find ways to, you, to live you with will. that at yeah. least for for some time.
1: <laughs> you will, so you will
0: definitely go. Thank you.
1: Get out early.
0: Yeah, uh, of course, Ralph
1: yeah so uh Martin, uh, one of the reasons I was excited about having you on the show was that uh, I do tours to Morocco, and ah, I know yes, that you, yeah. <laughs> and I know that you do as well, and uh, recently, I listened to uh, one of your podcast episodes where you talk about a, a misadventure entering into Morocco, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about that incident.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um I mean, this is something that anybody traveling to Morocco needs to know. And hopefully this will help you avoid the sort of problems that I had. But um, to sort of sh- share the whole story, I, as I was entering the country for my second time, it was the second trip I'd done there. I, um, I was asked by the customs guy if I was a photographer. And I said, yes. I am. So I wasn't going to lie to him. Um, the, the next question, uh, well, then he took me into a room at the side, asked me to open my camera bag. And when I did, they said, this is the second question I was asked, can your cameras shoot video? Not are you here to shoot video or anything like that? They said, can your cameras shoot video? I said, yes, but I'm mainly a, a still photographer and then the third thing that they said was you can't take your camera bag into morocco and i'm like what um and and i i was arguing with them for almost 2 hours i had to i was on the phone to the uh, travel partner that i was working with in morocco and they were on the phone to the government basically what they told me was that i need a permit to enter morocco with my camera bag with my camera gear and we i asked them to call rabat uh i asked that you know my travel partner to call rabat and said what are they talking about what permit permit did i need and the government replied there is no permit you don't need a permit to enter morocco with a camera bag um and so to cut a long story relatively short um, it turns out that they, they tricked me um, into saying yes. Well, I mean, how could they? It wasn't even a trick. iPhones, every camera made in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years, can shoot video. That's just a given. So their their question, can your cameras shoot video, is, is ridiculous anyway. Um, but it turns out that, if you are going to Morocco to make a movie or to photograph a commercial or something like that, not photograph, to video a commercial or something like that, then you have to get prior um, prior permission. Uh, and I was not doing that. And I didn't at any time tell them that I was going to be doing that. But they decided that they were going to ask me these few leading questions and then, basically, bully me for two hours, um telling me that I could not take my camera gear into Morocco, so towards the end of the conversation, i mean i had the I had the guy um try to explain to me what I needed i I thought maybe they were after a bribe, so I asked if I can pay some money to get my camera bag in, and he said, "No, it's not about money to his credit, you know, they weren't trying to get a bribe. Um, so in the end I said, okay, so I'm not leaving here without my camera bag. And and he said, you've got two choices. You leave without your camera bag or you get on a plane and go home. And I said, well, I'm here to do a photography tour. I can't just leave. I said, and, and I don't believe I should. I think that you're, you're in the wrong. There's nothing wrong with me bringing my, ca-. I showed him my photos from the previous year, all still photos And so in in the end, I said to I said to the guy, uh, "Okay, so I want to talk to your manager. And he took me back. He took me out to the person that I had initially been taken into the room with. And I said to this guy, um, do you understand my English enough to have a conversation? And he said, yes. I said, "Okay. I am going to if you keep my camera bag. I am going to walk outside of this airport, record a video on my iPhone, and by tomorrow, that video is going to be on a website that gets 4 million visitors a day. And I am going to damage Morocco's tourism for you. I said, and you personally are going to be responsible for reducing tourism and tourism income in Morocco. I said, I'm going to take your name and I want to know your superior's name. And we're going to do this if you keep my bag. And he said, wait there. And he went to his boss. And a guy came out of another office and said, are you here to shoot video? And I said, no. And I've told them this from the start. And he and he said, come with me. We went back into the room. He handed me a piece of plain paper and said, write down the where you are that you're entering Morocco write down the date and and write that you are not here to shoot video and sign it and i wrote it handed it to them and they gave me my camera bag back and i walked out of the airport um so i mean there was the the whole that's that's pretty much how it all uh happened and that was a two hour uh, ordeal really mm. i honestly i felt as though it was totally um, unprovoked, they asked me two leading questions that led to this. They had decided that they were just going to take me aside and give me a kicking for a few hours. It felt like I'd been taken down an alley and kicked for a, a couple of hours by some bullies. Um, so that's that's the story. What I the the thing that i there's a couple of things that i i ended my blog post with as well on this is um one thing that i want to say is that morocco is a beautiful place and although that there are there are some some areas some parts of the moroccan culture that can be a little bit difficult to work with in general the people that i've met there have all been wonderful people incredibly poetic um, I've got some of my best photos from Morocco. so i I don't recommend people decide not to go because of this. Um, but i I would recommend if you go, um if you can take smaller cameras, I mean, I had five DSRs with battery grips on them. Um, I think if I now use the EOS R and I'm not putting the battery grip on, it's a much less intimidating or professional looking camera. And I think that if you enter Morocco with smaller cameras, you're probably not going to have as much of a problem. Um, But also, if they ask you if your cameras shoot video, say, I don't know. Or you know, and, le- and and of course, if you are going to Morocco to make a video for commercial purposes, you need to get permission before you go. Um, but if if you're just going for still photography, there is no permission that you can get ahead of time. You don't need anything. Um, so just say if they ask you about video, just say I don't know. I I've never shot video with this camera. Um, but also just be just just think that. It's possible that they could just be having their fun um, by picking on unsuspecting tourists every, every, I don't know, few, every few weeks, every few days, every few people. I don't know. But um, I've not heard of anyone else that has this sort of story. And so I would hope it was a relatively isolated incident. Um, But like I say, don't let it put you off Morocco too much. But. Do, do be aware that this is a possibility and try to avoid it at all costs because unless you I mean you can use my story of of trying to get them um, get them sort of shame them into letting you in but uh, ideally you wouldn't need to do that
0: It gives me the impression that maybe uh, some of those people re- were reminded by their bosses that there was this regulation that in order to shoot video in Morocco you need a permit and they just had Want to know how zealous they were in enforcing it, and just picking a random foreigner and trying to see if they were going to shoot video and, uh, and just uh, harassing them they, for a couple hours just to look good in the in the eyes of their bosses? Maybe I don't know. Yeah,
2: I I I got the feeling that they were they were literally. I don't think they were trying to impress anybody. I think that they it was either a very very unfortunate um, mm-hmm. language problem. Um, but it didn't even feel like a but language was the problem. Conversation, they they all this me.
0: conversation in English
2: or French? It was, oh. yeah. No, it was in English. Um, but every time he these guys wanted to say something that they couldn't say, they would actually um, use, they would type it into a phone and show me the, the translation on the phone. Um, so they weren't 100% confident. But like I say, the question, the question, there was two questions. Yeah. Are you a photographer? Yes, the answer is to that. Um and does your camera shoot video not are you coming are you coming yeah. to morocco to shoot video and of course it shoots video it's it's a modern camera every camera that everyone else was walking into the country with on that day shoots video as well but they weren't all being beaten beaten up in the in the customs room for 2 hours yeah. it was crazy sure
1: martin uh, uh it, you know, overall, just how much gear did you have with you? I mean, how many bodies, lenses, tripods? I mean, why Why would they ask you, are you a photographer? Was it because I, of the amount of gear you had coming in, the type of gear? I,
2: it's possible, obviously. I mean, I, I had a, a rucksack on, but it was the same size. It was an 18-liter rucksack, and it had two, two 5DSRs with, with battery grips, and I had a... An 85 millimeter, a 24 to 105, and a 100 to 400 millimeter lens with me. So three lenses and two bodies. Um, And I had roughly the same amount of kit and the same size bag as my participants who were all coming into Morocco on the same day and no one got stopped. Um, You know, we we all had roughly the same size kits. So I, I don't think it was that.
1: No one else was asked that question of your group no. either. Yeah.
2: No, no, uh, no.
1: What I always say when asked my profession is I say teacher.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm not else lying. Is...
1: You know, mm. I'm just, that's what I am. I teach. Um, and so it just very general. And, you know, if someone were to drill down more, uh, Yeah, I don't know. So some some others
2: have given me that have given me that advice, and I'm I might use that in the future. But I'm, you know, I'm first and foremost I'm a photographer. That's what I do, and so I don't like lying about it. Um, And I don't feel that I am when I say I'm a
1: teacher. I don't.
2: Yeah, but, I mean, if someone says, are you a photographer and you have a load of camera on your back, uh, camera gear on your back, then, I mean, it's like walking in with a piano and saying, I'm not a pianist. And I know it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm piano mover. yeah, (laughs) you know, I mean, I understand, I understand what you're saying. And and as a way to, to get around or to avoid a possible situation, it's probably a good thing to do. Um, You know, like I say, I might do that if I'm asked again, but. Yeah, it just yeah. to me it it just felt as though I probably would have been in that situation just on that day. I think I could have told them that I was a a roach exterminator and I probably would have still gotten the same treatment. Um they they decided that they were gonna give me a hard time. And yeah. I don't think you know, they would have said, Oh yeah, but what you've got all of this camera gear, you're obviously a photographer and that would have been that would have been the okay, so the next question. Um, I don't think it would have avoided it on that day, to be quite honest. Yeah.
1: And if you recall, at what point would that have been? Because if I remember, you, you kind of go through customs passport check, and then actually on the way out of the airport, you go through another scanner before you even yeah. go outside. Is that the
2: point where this happened? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's the last mm-hmm. the last scanner before you walk outside.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is odd because you're already through customs, you've gotten your bag, you're walking out the airport, and then they scan you.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah. okay, well, this is good good information. I'm sorry that happened.
2: Yeah, nice. No, nothing for you to be sorry about. It's but it's yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, something that people should be be aware of and try to avoid if if at all possible.
0: Um. So. I think we are already almost one hour been talking here so I don't want you to keep you busy for, for much longer but there was just a, still a couple more things about Japan just going back to Japan uh, because we mentioned them when we were talking before starting the recording um, and one thing that you, you mentioned is those free guides that you recommend that everyone uh, take uh, I mean that they, they use when they come to Japan can you tell us a little bit what what's what's the yeah, kind of institution
2: um, so I, I don't necessarily think that everybody should do this um, but it, an option is uh, go to the tokyofreeguide.org net uh go, .org website um, and this basically is a a website where people can go and hook up with uh, local people that are generally just trying to find a way to practice their english um and so you can get people to show you around Tokyo uh by you know hooking up with them. You would obviously you'd you'd want to be paying for their lunch, you maybe bring them a present um you know the the regular etiquette and niceties apply It's not like you're you're hiring this person um because they're they're not asking for money um but I think that it would be only right to buy them lunch and make sure you pay for their train tickets as you travel around um there's another couple of uh people that i cuz i don't do f- tokyo based uh, trips um but there is a guy named Brian Wood Koywa who is a good friend of mine he does some um you can find him at urbanweirdphotography.com and also a an incredibly talented uh, street photographer here Lee Chapman who does the Tokyo Times uh blog he he's got uh he's starting to do these uh, guided tours as well and he's at uh i i explore. oh i explore tokyo and that's i as in your eyes e-y-e and then explore shares the e so it's e-y-e explore tokyo.com um and I'll send you these links so that you can yeah. put them into the show notes for anyone that wants to hook them up, hook up with these guys. But both Brian and Lee, I know them both personally. They do they do great uh, great jobs, and they're very, very nice people, so I highly recommend them.
0: Good. Maybe I'll get in touch with uh, one of them when I go there. Yeah. Uh, of, yeah. Co- of course, I'll also... Uh, call you maybe we well, can share a cup of sake
2: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah it would be a would pleasure it would
0: be really nice to, to see you in person when I'm there
2: uh, I wouldn't miss it
0: uh, other than that where, um, uh, anything you would like to, to add or just uh, say where can people find you online
2: yeah um, everything that I'm up to is at com. so if you head over there uh, everything is linked from the top page and from the menu at the top of the the top of every page. So that's a good place to start.
0: Great. Ralph, anything you would like to add?
1: Well it's been a great, uh, Martin, nice to finally meet you, even if just virtually here online.
2: So no, I appreciate not at all.
1: You coming on the show. Great information.
2: Uh no, thank you. Blessed. Thank you very yeah. much for having me. Pleasure, so, pleasure. So Ralph,
0: what's next with you? You're in Belize, and then
2: Yeah,
1: scouting here in Georgia for a little bit, and then I'm off to Morocco in about three weeks from today, in uh, mid-April. From there, I head to do some scouting in uh, south of France and Provence. Uh, From there after that, I've got a trip to Portugal with a group I'm really looking forward to. And then I'll be scouting again in southern France. Uh, Do have some availability on trips coming up to uh, Copper Canyon. My Romania trip is sold out. Uh, the armenia georgia trip at the end of this year is still got some spaces on it and then we have uh, india and cambodia to finish out the year so if anyone's looking for some travel ideas uh, go to photoenrichment.com and you can also follow me on all the social media networks at ralph velasco and at photo enrichment how about yourself hugo what do you have going on
0: I just wanted to mention that since you talked about Southern France, that we are probably going to meet up again there. Uh, You're going to do a little workshop uh, together with our good friend and past uh, podcast guest, uh, Pia Parolin, right? What's the date? Is the beginning of May? Yeah, I
1: want to say it's May 4th and 5th. Mm -hmm. So if anyone happens to be in or would like to come to to the Southern France, Nice and uh, the Antibes area, uh, please let us uh, get in touch with uh, with us and uh, be glad to let you know about that. But it's going to be a uh, like a two half day workshops on that weekend and uh, really looking forward to doing some uh, walking tours and uh, some image reviews. And We're going to have a really nice barbecue back at, at Pia's place, uh, which I understand is wonderful. So it's going to be a really, really nice weekend if someone wants to get out and shoot in southern France.
0: Yeah, I'll be doing a kind of the same at the beginning of June. I've got a couple of days of uh, landscape uh, photography, a little seminar and worship uh, on, uh, I think it's June eight and nine, if I'm not mistaken. So people can uh, find it on my tours website at tours.ucphoto.me. And other than that, it just recently returned from the Venice Carnival. It was a great uh, event, has every year, and uh, bookings for Venice Carnival 2020 are already open with an early bird discount on the website, uh, plus a number of tours that I'm uh, preparing and so on. And uh, yeah, keep an eye on the website, tours.ucphoto.me or follow me on, on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram with just my... Just look for my name, Ugo Che, you will find me easily. Uh, yep, that's really all for now. And I uh, hope this was uh, interesting and informative. And I want to thank Martin again for, for his time and for lots of tips about Japan and not only Japan, wildlife in general, Morocco and mm. <laughs> and what else. It's been great. Hope to see you in Tokyo, maybe soon. And yeah. until then, let's get out and shoot.